All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. How's everyone doing? I hope everyone's crushing whatever they're working on out there. It's pretty busy here. Valentine's season here in anywhere USA. My dance card's pretty full. I don't know about you. I wanted to say thank you all for continuing to spread the word about what had happened, a true crime podcast. Your support and listenership means the world to me. I know I say it every episode, but it's important for me to thank you. We're a team. So on that note, I'd like to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout out time. Thank you for the listens, Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio, and Marshall, Texas. What's good, Los Angeles, Sacramento, San Francisco, Temecula, and Anaheim, California. What it do, Atlanta, Waynesboro, Savannah, Alpharetta, and Statesboro, Georgia. Welcome back, Gross Point, Detroit, Flint, Ypsilanti, and Traverse City, Michigan. You are so, I love you so hard, Goldsboro, Winston, Salem, Raleigh, Rocky Mountain, Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm always so happy to see you, Leinster, Munster, Connaught, and Cork, Ireland. Welcome, Barragata, Village, Guam, Mushmush, Iwakuni, Hiroshima, Osaka, Okinawa, and Tokyo, Japan. Macedonia, Mykonos, Athens, Patras, and Thera, Greece, welcome back. Luxembourg, thank you for tuning in. Wellington, Auckland, Canterbury, and Bay of Plenty, New Zealand, thank you so very much for tuning in for every episode. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the likes, shares, and subscribes. Don't forget to join the What Had Happened Facebook group and follow all of the social media accounts that can be found in the description box with my references per the usual. Last week, literally, for our birthday episode, I discussed juvenile serial killer Craig Price of Warwick, Rhode Island. For today's episode, since Valentine's Day is around the corner, I'll be discussing a killer couple. For two years, ten people fell victim to the love slave killers. Gerald Armand Gallego was born July 17, 1946, in Sacramento, California, the son of Gerald Albert Gallego, Sr., age 18, and Lorraine Davies, age 19. By the time Gerald was born, Lorraine had given birth to her first child two years prior. When Gerald was born, his father was incarcerated at San Quentin Penitentiary. Although Gerald Sr. had never met his met the son he sired with Lorraine, it said that the boy had inherited his father's temper. When Gerald was old enough to inquire about his father, Lorraine told him that his father died in an accident. The truth was, after leaving San Quentin, Gerald Sr. was in and out of trouble. After being paroled, Gerald Sr. fled the state, eventually winding up in Mississippi. In 1954, Gerald Sr. murdered a town marshal in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. After being found guilty on the charges of first-degree murder, Gerald Sr. was sentenced to death. After arriving to Parchman Penitentiary in 1954, Gerald Sr. hurled cleaning acid into the eyes of a jailer and beat him to death with a lead pipe. On March 3, 1955, Gerald Sr. would be the first inmate executed by way of the gas chamber at Parchman Penitentiary in Mississippi for the murder of the two officers. Gerald Sr. was 26 years old at the time of his execution. Throughout his youth, his mother Lorraine was a sex worker in the Skid Row section of Sacramento. Young Ger Gerald worked alongside his mother as a runner for local pimps. Although the boy yearned for affection from his mother, he was constantly rejected. Lorraine would marry numerous times. 
Johns would sexually abuse the young boy. By 1959, 13-year-old Gerald would be arrested for having sex with his six-year-old neighbor girl. By the age of 32, he, he'd been married seven times, twice with the same woman, and dodging convictions of incest, rape, and sodomy. Charlene Adele Williams was born on October 10, 1956 in Stockton, California, to entrepreneur and supermarket vice president Charles and Mercedes Williams. The Williams family, in stark contrast to the Gallego family, provided their shy, intellectual, intelligent as hell daughter Charlene a wonderful life. Mercedes made it a point to travel with her husband when he went on business trips. Unfortunately, after an accident, Mercedes was no longer able to accompany Charles, so Char Charlene took over traveling with her father from city to city. Business associates praised Charlene for being so eloquently spoken and mannered. Charlene, possessing a 160 IQ, was an exceptionally gifted and talented child. For years, she excelled as a violin prodigy. However, her peak was eclipsed by teenage angst and rebellion. When Charlene became a teenager, she stopped traveling with her father, opting for experimenting with drugs, alcohol, and sexual promiscuity, even boasting to her friends that she had a black lover. So, check it out. As, progress as progressive a state of California had been, they repealed their anti-miscegenation law in 1948, which is approximately 20 years before Loving versus Commonwealth of Virginia. But, it was still taboo. So, you know, for her to make these claims and living in the affluent area that she lived in, going to the schools that she was attending, it was kind of like, ooh, girl, really? Did you really? What would mother say? Barely managing to squeak by, Charlene graduated from high school, but flunked out of college shortly thereafter. Before the age of 20, Charlene had been married twice. Her first husband, a young, wealthy man with a heroin addiction. It's said that Charlene's first husband became turned off by her due to a myriad of habits and proclivities his young wife was into. Like her husband, Charlene enjoyed drugs. However, her slovenly appearance, her parents' insertion into the couple's marriage, and Charlene's desires for women ended the marriage. Shortly thereafter, Charlene married a soldier, but quickly ended the marriage when she found that she was married to a mama's boy. After two failed marriages, Charlene began an affair with a married man who would end up dumping her after she asked her lover if his wife could join them in the bedroom. Rejected and broken, Charlene attempted to kill herself. Shortly after her attempt, as fate would have it, her path would cross with Gerald Gallego. By 1977, Gerald had been arrested 23 times. In his youth, he'd, been, he'd served time at the Fred C. Nellis School for Boys, the Preston School of Industry, the Dual Vocational Institution, Vacaville Medical Facility, and various jails. When Gerald met Charlene at a dodgy poker bar September 1977, Charlene said that her first impression was that Gerald was a nice, clean-cut guy, and Gerald's impression of her was that she was a very sweet girl. He wooed her with dozens of roses and chocolates. Within a week's time, the couple rented a home together. Immediately upon moving in together, Gerald laid down his set of rules. Charlene was to be the primary provider for their homestead, turning over her paychecks as a grocery store clerk to Gerald. He dictated what she could and couldn't wear, and never hid his affairs with other women. 
Charlene took it all on the chin with a stiff upper lip. While most women would find Gerald's behavior controlling, demoralizing, and abusive, Charlene found Gerald and his darker fantasies alluring. For the first year of their relationship, Gerald couldn't seem to get enough of Charlene, but similarly to the Neelys, Charlene became less and less attractive to Gerald. Within this relationship, Charlene was the sexual submissive and Gerald the dominant partner. Mere months into moving in together, Gerald brought home a 16-year-old dancer. The three engaged in a threesome, but both women were allowed to engage in sexual acts upon uh, Gerald. However, they were not allowed to touch each other. Shortly after the threesome occurred, Gerald returned home from work to find Charlene and the 16-year-old girl from the threesome before having sex. Enraged, Gerald threw the dancer out of an open window and struck Charlene. After the encounter, Gerald would begin to withhold sex from Charlene, claiming he was impotent. However, it's believed that he withheld sex from her because she was dis he was disgusted that Charlene would be able to satisfy her sexual appetite without him and furthermore with a woman. Besides finding that his sub wasn't quite as submissive as he'd like her to be. So, you know, eh. Gerald would then begin to sodomize his 14-year-old daughter and her friend when they would come to the couple's home. It's believed that Charlene had full knowledge of the sexual abuse happening in the home. She chose not to intervene. It is unknown if she was present during the attacks, either in the same room or just within the residence. Either way, she didn't find Gerald's conduct to be morally wrong or out of line. On September 11th, 1978, Charlene was two months pregnant with the couple's first child and suffering from morning sickness. For some time, Gerald had openly fantasized about having sex slaves he could do as he pleased with, and Charlene wanted what Gerald wanted. On that day, Gerald decided it was time to finally turn fantasy into reality. Although Charlene initially feared being caught, she agreed to go along with Gerald's plan. The two climbed into their 1973 Dodge conversion van that was bedecked with mountain murals on both sides and headed out to the Country Club Plaza Shopping Center in Sacramento. When they arrived, Charlene hopped out and reluctantly searched for two girls. After watching Rhonda Scheffler, age 17, and Kippy Vaught for a little while, Charlene approached the two and asked if they wanted... Okay, so here's another pet peeve of mine. To smoke pot in the parking lot. And this is why it's my pet peeve. Here comes a quick rant. Stop accepting drugs from fucking strangers. It's not safe. You never smoke a pre-rolled anything from anybody if you haven't watched them do it. Because you don't know what they put in it. You don't know what their intentions are. Especially if you smoke marijuana and at that time, you know, hey, you guys want to smoke a joint? Sure. Mm -mm. Don't get high off a stranger's supply. It can potentially end in nefarious shit happening to you. Rant over. Sensing no danger and taking an afternoon smoke with their new friend, the girls followed Charlene to the parking lot. When Charlene opened the van, the girls were greeted by Gerald, who sat in waiting with a 25 caliber pistol. Surprised by what was happening, Rhonda and Kippy were easily subdued. 
After binding the girls with tape, Gerald instructed Charlene to watch them as he drove away. The couple drove their victims east on I-80 towards the Sierra Nevada mountains, getting off the interstate of Baxter, California. After finding a remote spot, Gerald left the girls with Charlene. Hours after leaving the three, Gerald returned, telling Charlene to drive the van to Sacramento and visit friends as to establish an alibi and return with the couple's Oldsmobile. Ever dutiful, Charlene did as she was told. When she returned to the remote spot, Rhonda and Kippy were forced into the backseat of the car. Gerald sat between the teenagers, giving them hopes of being released unharmed as he gave directions to Charlene. Finally, after some time, when they were east of Sacramento, Gerald instructed Charlene to pull the Oldsmobile over. After forcing the girls out of the backseat, Gerald clubbed them with a tire iron and shot them. The bodies of the girls were discovered on September 13th, and the couple decided to put distance between themselves and Sacramento until the case quieted. The couple dashed to Reno, where they were quickly wed. Instead of insisting Charlene run, turn herself in, Charles and Mercedes helped the couple, instructing Charlene to steal her cousin's birth certificate. Gerald obtained a driver's license and other documents under the alias Stephen Robert Fail. Using these documents, Charles Williams utilized his business ties to get his son-in-law hired as a truck driver for a supermarket in Houston. The job in Houston didn't suit Gerald, and following, the following spring, he and Charlene returned to Reno, Nevada. Initially, the couple settled into a seemingly normal routine and lifestyle. Gerald worked as a driver for a meat distribution company, while Charlene worked for another meat distribution company in, their office, in, a, in the office. By June 1979, Gerald left that job. His thoughts consumed with procuring more sex slaves, Gerald decided that the best place to find his new sex slaves would be at the Washoe County Fair Fairgrounds. On June 24th, Father's Day, as 13-year-old Brenda Judd and 14-year-old Sandra Coley were leaving the fairgrounds, the teens were approached by Charlene, who offered the girls money in exchange for placing handbills on the windshield of the cars parked at the fairgrounds. That's another pet peeve of mine. Teach your children. Don't fall for these quick, make some quick cash jobs that random people, strangers offer in fucking parking lots. Because, again, this is how people get sex trafficked, too. The teens quickly agreed to help Charlene and followed her to her van. Similar to the abduction of Rhonda and Kippy the year before, when Charlene opened the van door, Gerald greeted them holding a firearm, this time a 44 caliber pistol. The girls were immediately forced into the van where their wrists and feet were bound. As Charlene navigated the van away from the fairgrounds, Gerald barked directions and sexually assaulted the kidnapped girls. Charlene did as instructed and drove into the high Nevada desert. Once satisfied with the location Charlene had driven to, he told her to pull over. Gerald then forced the girls out of the van, carrying with him a shovel and a hammer. When Gerald returned to the van and Charlene, Brenda and Sandra were not with him. Their parents would go on to report the teen girls as missing, but of course, like most cases from that time frame, the girls' disappearances were treated like they had run away from home. 
On November 20th, 1999, the girls' remains were discovered by a property owner who found them in a shallow grave north of Reno off of U.S. Highway 395 inside of Lassen County, California. Their remains were identified three months later. Three months following the abduction and murders of Sandra Coley and Brenda Judd, the Gallego family moved back to Sacramento, California. Still using their acquired aliases, Gerald got a job as a bartender. Shortly after Gerald began an affair with a woman who would become pregnant with his child, it super pissed him off. On April 24th, 1980, Charlene was awakened by Gerald demanding that they, quote, get another girl. After cruising for a while, the couple spotted 17-year-olds Karen Chapman Twiggs and Stacy Ann Redekin exiting a bookstore. Charlene approached the teens and, as she had done with Kippy and Rhonda, asked them if they'd like to smoke a joint with her in her van. The two said, heck yes, they were down to burn one with Charlene, and the trio headed towards the van together. When Charlene opened the van door, the girls were greeted by Gerald and the barrel of a 357 Magnum. Forced into the van, Gerald barked at the girls to undress as he gave directions to Charlene. As the van headed towards a remote wooded area, Gerald raped the girls. Sexually satisfied, Gerald told Charlene to pull over. The girls were forced to march to their death, where Gerald bludgeoned them with a hammer and shovel. Unlike the times before, Gerald made Charlene view the girls inside their shallow graves before he covered them with dirt. Charlene told Gerald she thought she saw slight movement coming from the girls, but Gerald assured her that the girls were dead. Three months later, on July 27th, 1980, picnickers 20 miles outside of Lovelock, Nevada, stumbled upon the remains of Stacy and Karen. Because Gerald had buried them in shallow graves, coyotes had scavenged their bodies. Upon autopsy, it was reported that both girls had been raped and suffered fatal head trauma caused by blunt force by way of an instrument. Following the murders of Stacy and Karen, Charlene learned that she was pregnant, which further enraged Gerald. A month later, the couple would marry again, this time under the aliases they'd been using since the abduction and murders of their first victims, Kippy and Rhonda. Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Fail. One week later, as Mr. and Mrs. Fail were driving down the highway, the couple spotted pregnant hitchhiker, 21-year-old Linda Aguilar. Charlene pulled the van along Linda and asked if she cared to join the couple in the van. Happy to be picked up, she accepted the ride. As Charlene pulled away from the side of the highway and the van door slid behind Linda, Gerald pointed his 357 Magnum in her face and restrained her. Charlene drove a shorter distance to a remote beachside area before pulling over. Parked, Gerald forced his four-month pregnant hostage out of the van, where he raped her repeatedly. After Gerald was finished raping Linda, he struck her about the head with a rock and then strangled her to ensure she was dead. Two weeks later, on June 22nd, the badly decomposed body of Linda Aguilar was discovered by German tourists walking along the beach. While Gerald thought he'd succeeded in killing Linda, her autopsy would reveal that Linda hadn't died from the blunt force trauma and strangulation. In fact, Linda, who was face down in the sand, was unconscious when Gerald and Charlene drove away. She'd regained consciousness at some point after after they left, and in a panic, she struggled to move and free herself, subsequently suffocating on sand. 
July 17, 1980, was Gerald's 34th birthday, and he had a specific woman selected to unleash his dark desires on. Unlike Gerald's seven previous victims, he had an acquaintanceship with 34-year-old Virginia Mokel. Virginia worked at as a barmaid at a tavern frequented by he and Charlene, and she, she served the couple on numerous occasions. <clears throat> as Virginia walked home from her shift at the tavern on that fateful day, she was abducted by Gerald and Charlene. Gerald raped Virginia so savagely she begged for death afterwards. Gerald then strangled her and dumped her body in a pond. Two and a, month, two and a half months later, on October 3rd, the new severely decomposed remains of Linda, Linda Muckle were discovered near Clarksburg in a brush by local fishermen. By the 1st of November, the desires began creeping up on Gerald again. He told Charlene he was, get, quote, getting that feeling, and she knew what he was referring to. After midnight on November 2nd, the restlessness and caginess began to take over, and the two left the home in the Oldsmobile, cruising for vic a victim or victims. As he was driving, Gerald spotted engaged couple 22-year-old Craig Miller and 21-year-old Mary Elizabeth Sowers, 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 standing along the side of the road together. The couple had just left a fraternity party, and it was approximately 1.30 in the morning. Gerald daringly pulled over and jumped out of his car. Charlene slid low in the passenger seat out of sight. Gerald approached the couple and pointed his 25 caliber Beretta at them, forcing them to get into his car. The couple sat in the back seat for a few as frat brothers watched the weirdness unfolding. Sensing something was off, one of the frat brothers attempted to get into the front seat when Charlene, like, popped right up and slapped the shit out of the young man across the face, telling him to get the fuck back and he wasn't getting in the car. As the car pulled away from the street, frat brothers who witnessed the abduction quickly memorized the license plate number and make a model of the car. Gerald drove the frightened couple to a secluded area near Bass Lake, California. Once he parked the car, Gerald yelled at Craig to get out of the car. As, car wa as Craig walked towards the hood of the car, Gerald shot Craig execution style in the back of the head. As Craig's body dropped to the ground, Gerald shot the young man in the head two more times. Gerald returned to the car and instructed Charlene to drive them back to their apartment. Once back at their apartment, Gerald spent hours raping Mary Elizabeth while Charlene sat and watched television. When he was finally satisfied, he and Charlene transported Mary Elizabeth to a rural area. After Charlene pulled over in the field near Placer County, California, Gerald instructed Mary Elizabeth to get out of the car and shot her three times at point-blank range. After they left, they drove back to their apartment to dispose of evidence. When word of Craig's body was, you know, being discovered the following day, you know, was delivered to the frat brother, you know, was like made known. I don't, I don't know exactly how this got out, but the following day, Craig's body was discovered. His frat brothers caught word of this, and so they immediately notified the police 
and inform them of the strange occurrences that they witnessed as they felt like they were the last people to see their two friends. And also, Mary Elizabeth had not been found yet. She was in a different location. So, armed with that lead, police were able to track down the car the boys reported at the home of Charlene's parents. When Gerald and Charlene arrived at her parents' home, the police were already in their house speaking with the Williamses. Gerald slipped away and sent Charlene into the home to answer the police's questions. While there, they were able to speak to Charlene, who identified herself as Mrs. Stephen Stiles, another one of the couple's aliases. She vehemently denied the account of the frat boys. Charlene told the officers that the night before, she and her boyfriend went to the movies and had driven his red triumph. Detectives reminded Charlene that the Red Triumph had been parked in front of her parents' home all night, and she said that she didn't recall which car they took because they had been so drunk. Police left, but were not convinced of Charlene's story. They also didn't mention that the body of Craig Miller had been found. Detectives worked to obtain a search warrant. Meanwhile, Gerald realized that he did absolutely nothing to try to conceal Craig's body and decided that he needed to go back and move it. When he and Charlene went back, they were unable to find Craig's body. The two immediately went into oh shit mode and went on the run. The couple drove first their drove their Oldsmobile to Reno, Nevada, where they dumped it, and then they boarded a bus for Salt Lake City, Utah. In Sacramento, as detectives' evidence began to pile up against Gerald and Charlene. Um, Craig's frat brothers were able to identify Gerald as the man in a, in a photo as the man that they saw driving the Oldsmobile that abducted Craig and Mary Elizabeth. When detectives went back to the Williams home, Charles Williams told detectives Gerald's aliases and his real name. Detectives were able to match the ballistics on the bullets removed from Craig Miller's head. The slugs recovered from the ceiling of a bar Gerald once worked at and in a fit had shot his 25 cal Beretta into the ceiling. When Gerald and Charlene arrived in Salt Lake City, she called her parents asking for money, which they wired to her. From Salt Lake City, the pair traveled to Denver and then Omaha, Nebraska. It was in Nebraska that Charlene would call her parents again asking for more money. We're really Charlene and Mercedes Williams, or Charles and Mercedes Williams agreed to send their daughter money. This time, however, the Williamses notified the FBI of the pending Western Union pickup in Omaha, and they in turn placed plainclothes agents inside of the Omaha Western Union office the following day. Like clockwork, on November 17, 1980, at the time that the Williamses told Charlene to pick up her money, she and Gerald strolled into the office together, where they were apprehended without incident. The couple had been on the run for two weeks. While both Gerald and Charlene both pleaded not guilty to kidnapping and murder charges, Charlene's attorneys were able to convince prosecutors to allow Charlene to testify against Gerald in multiple states and counties in exchange for a reduced sentence of 16 years and 8 months in prison for the minimum time she could be sentenced for first-degree murder in California. Due to the shortage of funds, the public raised $28,000 to help prosecute Gerald. January 1981, while awaiting trial and incarcerated, Charlene gave birth to a son who was immediately placed into her parents' custody. The couple's trial 
attempts began in 1983, with Gerald being the first tried. So now I'm going to quote some stuff. Quote, Gerald exhibited the same hubris that had brought him to his current state, decided to serve as his own attorney. His misadventure in defense began with his deferring his right to an opening statement until after the prosecution had made its own statement. He further damaged his case and credibility by offering no cross-examination of Mercedes Williams, one of the prosecution's most effective witnesses. He did cross-examine Charlene, however, for six days. During the prosecution's questioning, Charlene had offered a defense for her lack of action. She had been afraid of Gerald, she said. He beat her and he threatened her. He demanded and kept all of the money she made, and when she'd expressed doubt or displeasure, he testi she testified that he shamed her, saying she wasn't, quote, the girl with heart he thought she was. During his cross-examination, Gerald tried to undermine her credibility, offering an, as evidence a love note she'd written to him after their capture. He portrayed her as an unstable drug addict and got her to admit to a lesbian affair she'd had while in jail awaiting the trial. On the final day of laborious, trivial questioning, Gerald came to his point. Quote, Mrs. Gallego, he said, isn't the bottom line of your deal to blame both of these murders on me to save yourself? Charlene shot back, quote, no, it isn't. It seemed unthinkable that Gerald could do anything to further undermine his own defense, but he did. He put himself on the stand, which allowed prosecutors to catch him in countless inconsistencies in his closing statement. He admitted he'd taken a, quote, legal licking, but asked the jury to believe him, quote, on faith, if nothing else. They did not, end quote. After six months of hearings on June 21st, 1983, Gerald was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death by the state of California for the murders of Craig Miller and Mary Elizabeth Sowers. Because of the plea arrangement made between Charlene and the prosecutors, in November 1983, Charlene was sentenced to 16 years and 8 months with the understanding that no other charges from any other state could or would be pressed against her so long as she fully cooperated, which she did comply with. Following the extradition to Nevada, for the murders of Stacy Redican, Brenda Judd, Karen Chipman Twiggs, and Sandra K. Coley. Because Brenda and Sandra's bodies hadn't been found, the state's best evidence was in the Redican Twig cases, Twigs cases. Charlene had led investigators to a ball of white macrame rope in Gerald's car. The rope matched that found binding the hands and bodies of Redican and Twigs. The trial began on May 23, 1984, in Nevada, with the intent of, again, discrediting Charlene. Instead of defending himself in this case, Gerald was defended by public defender Gary Marr. While the defense hoped to sway the jury and discredit the state's star witness, they were unsuccessful in their endeavors. On June 24, 1984, Gerald was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. Charlene Gallego, known since the mid-80s by her maiden name of Charlene Williams, was released from a Nevada prison in July 1997. While in prison, she extensively studied psychology, business, and Icelandic literature. 
During an interview, Charlene claimed that she was also a victim when she said, quote, there were victims who died and there were victims who lived. It's taken me a hell of a long time to realize that I'm one of the ones who lived. She also claimed that, quote, she tried to save some of their lives. In uh, July 18th, 2002, Gerald Gallego, age 56, died at the Nevada Prison System's Regional Medical Center. In March of 2002, he had been moved from Ely State Prison's death row to the medical center because he had rectal cancer. So what had happened is this. When Charlene stated that there were living victims, she wasn't exaggerating. Gerald was born into an upbringing of abuse, neglect, and chaos. Being raised to survive and hustle, was he was initially a victim. So what I didn't really get into, because this is literally my second attempt at recording this episode, is that when he was growing up, yes, he was in a home where his mother was a sex worker, but there were also other family members within her family who had rap sheets for a, a slew of things between robbery, rape, murder, sexual abuse, all sorts of shit. So her family's rap sheet, his family's rap sheet was longer than a CBS receipt. And at the hands of these people, he was neglected and abused and, you know, psychologically broken, you know, because that happens. So initially being born into this family that he didn't ask for, you know, he didn't ask for the immense psychological damage he was given. Gerald lacked control over his life. When he became an adult, control was the overall driving force behind his every waking moment. Alongside with his, you know, sexual proclivities and perversions, which I believe were also taught and adapted. You know, he take he took them in and instead of being the victim, he now became the perpetrator. And we find that a lot of times that people who were sexually abused become sexual abusers. So that happened with him. Charlene, on the other hand, potentially, you know, searched for someone who would dominate her and make her feel a certain way because she was given everything, you know, by her own parents' own omission. And as we saw, even down to when she was on the run the first time by them helping her procure her cousin's birth certificate and, you know, new identities and all this other shit. She was coddled and she was, you know, nursed along. And basically, I feel as if her parents most likely didn't give her the affection and all of the attention that she needed developmentally. Instead, they bought her off. She was an only child. She was treated like a little mini adult. She was an accessory. Um... And that backfired because when she became a teenager, she began to rebel and she fell into bad habits. She adapt, you know, she adopted some, uh, you know, substance abuse issues and she also struggled with her own sexual identity. 
So to have somebody come in and tell you we're going to do this and we're going to do that and this is how it's going to go might have been a breath of fresh air because I can only imagine what the what the daily struggle would have been within her first marriage to a heroin addict because they were both living within their addictions and her second marriage because he was a submissive because he was a mama's boy. He let his mother dictate whatever, whatever, who knows what it was. He might have just been super close with his mom and she just wasn't with it, you know. So she needed, obviously, she, she, she sought domination from a partner. While she was afforded every conceivable want and need, you know, that didn't help until she met this person and you know they didn't provide necessarily what she craved as far as genuine love you know her past relationships with all of these other people but then she meets this person who's can accept her for who she is and she can accept him for who he is and he's got to take it or leave it machismo arrogance about him and that turns her on it's alluring it's dark you know it's different and so she gravitated towards that i believe there's also some stockholm shit that takes place within the dynamic of the relationship as well because she stated that she did not like or seek pleasure from the sodomy and some of the other things that he would do to her sexually she just went along with it basically to save her own ass uh i believe that she searched and yearned for that type of connection, you know, perceiving Gerald's control as love. And that's where the whole Stockholm thing really comes in. Either way, the abused became the abuser. And while Charlene was just as much a victim as the others, she was also complicit and participated in the acts that resulted in the loss of many lives. So, you know, she becomes just as culpable for all of that um you know it's a you know it's really fucked up you know the whole situation is kind of screwy um everybody fucking sucks i hope that she was able to once she was released move on with her life and start fresh and potentially start living a life with healthy relationships and also being able to be true to her own sexual identity so that she didn't feel the shame that she was given. We saw this before in episode 8 with Rosalie Trujillo, where Linda and Ruben Torres had that kind of relationship, that toxic, machismo, submissive, dominant energy was in their relationship. And Ruben was cool with a lot of stuff until Linda caught feelings for Rosalie. And then that's when everything started to disintegrate within their relationship. We, you know, saw the, we saw the same thing also with Alvin and Judith Neely, where, you know, Judith, like Gerald, after her father died, grew up in a horrible situation where her mom was on the CB radio selling sex and there was nothing but a sheet 
in between the two of them to divide the room as, you know, Johns were coming and going and they were attempting to mess with her as well. Um, and then she, you know, went on to meet Alvin Neely and then they went from state, you know, between Georgia and Tennessee murdering girls that they turned into sex slaves as well. And there was that level of, you know, rose colored glasses and blinder horse blinders and the switch being, you know, pulled down where the women disengage and, you know, just remove themselves from the situation and just go with it. But, you know, there was also that part where it was believed that Judith was actually the mastermind and she was more cunning. It has to be noted that Charlene had a 160 IQ, so she was not a dumb bunny. She, you know, she knew that she was doing some horribly ugly thing, you know, shit to people. She, she, she had, I have a 138 IQ. She's way smarter than me on the IQ spectrum, but a 138 is nothing to sneeze at. So like, I, you know what I mean? She wasn't dumb. Uh, we also saw this kind of control with Dean Coral in episode 21, you know, the real candy man. Listen, shit happens all the time. There's a control and there's a puppet master. The real question is who was really pulling whose strings? The world will never know because, you know, Gerald's truth died with him when he died in 2002. I don't care to look into anything else about Charlene because she has served her 16 years and eight months, was released, and has gone on with her life. Whew, that was a lot, you guys. So hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I am going to attempt to drop another one in a week or so. You know, I like to give you guys a little bit of something extra, especially since it's our podcast birthday month. Again, I'm Kimberly. Thank you for tuning in to what had happened to True Crime Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed. Here goes your beautiful outro music. <laughs>